0: Before I introduce Irina, perhaps I could get this much audience participation. Will you please join me in a five-syllable chant, which you will say twice, and you will say, Ratushinskaya. Please, together. Ratushinskaya. One more time. Ratushinskaya. There you go. Now I will introduce I will introduce my friend.
1: You just heard the late Ed Erickson introducing Russian poet Irina Ratushinskaya. And this is Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockerell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. Today we have something a little different in store for you. Russian poet, author, and activist Irina Ratushinskaya passed away earlier this summer. And as we dug into the Festival Archives, we knew we wanted to celebrate her life and work with a special episode. Irina spoke at the 1998 Festival of Faith and Writing, 10 years after her release from a Russian prison camp. And we pulled together several different recordings from that weekend. Before we play that tape, Professor Erickson is going to help me provide a bit more background on this amazing poet, her life and work.
0: Serena served time in the Gulag Archipelago. Her crimes? The first one listed, and I quote, was authorship of poetry. Another was authorship of, I quote again, documents in defense of human rights.
1: Irina was recruited by the KGB to serve as a spy and turn them down. She began writing poetry in earnest in her 20s after she was fired from her job as a teacher for refusing to discriminate against Jewish students. She took up human rights work with her husband, a physicist and fellow activist, and was sentenced to forced labor in a camp in 1983, shortly after her 29th birthday.
0: Irina has written several volumes of poetry, two books of memoirs, and a novel. When in prison, she wrote with a matchstick on bars of soap, memorized the words, and washed the evidence down the drain.
1: During her nearly four years in the labor camp, she managed to smuggle out some 250 poems, writing them on four-centimeter-wide cigarette paper. Her husband, who had lost his job by that point, had them published in the West. Peace talks between Reagan and Gorbachev in the late 80s led to her release, and she was allowed to go with her husband to London to seek medical treatment. In spite of Irina's years in the labor camp, the buoyancy of her spirit was evident during her time with us at the festival in 1998. In addition to her deeply rooted abiding sense of humor, her liveliness and the fullness of her character, Irina's words about the function of poetry as the last form of resistance in times of oppression, and its purpose in times of plenty, when people are grasping for something beyond the material, still seem timely. I think you'll see what I mean about her sense of humor in this short clip on why she never reads her poems in any other language than her native Russian.
2: The idea came from America, so you must not complain. It was in late 60s or early 70s, I don't remember, I was still a schoolgirl, when one of American well-known singers, now I don't remember his name, came to Moscow to sing in the biggest festival hall in Moscow. It was broadcasted by TV and all the youngsters were in front of TVs. He was singing, everyone was overexcited. And in the end, he decided to sing a Russian folk song. In Russian, it was a very good old song about love, about death and he sang it with such feeling with heavy American accent we screamed with laughter in front of tv (laughs) and so did the audience in the festival hall i could see it and since then i decided i shouldn't read my poems in any foreign languages (laughs) Before we listen to
1: more of Arena's reflections on poetry, I want to introduce Lil Copan, an acquisitions editor at Urban's Publishing. Lil is a longtime festival participant, both as a speaker and an attendee, and she's also a writer. Her own next book, a novel titled Little Hours, comes out in February 2018, and she remembers being in the audience listening to Arena during the 1998 festival. Well, thanks so much for joining me here today, Lil. Well, often I ask people, um, Where did I find you today?
3: And um, it's a little unusual today because you're actually here in my office. I'm so glad to be in your (laughs) office, especially after circuitous uh, trips down the hallways to find it. We're in a
1: round building. So you had to find me today. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, today's episode of Rewrite Radio is also a little different because we're going to be weaving together recordings from multiple sessions from the 1998 Festival of Faith and Writing featuring the poet Irina
3: Rutrushinskaya. Or how would you pronounce it? You'd school me on how to pronounce her name. I have heard two pronunciations. One is Ratushinskaya and one is Ratushinskaya. And you grew up in a Russian-speaking household, so um, we'll, we'll defer to your, <laughs>
1: your pronunciation there. You also are the one who kind of alerted me to this recording um, from an email. Tell me, about, um, tell me about your relationship with Ratushinskaya's recordings from the festival.
3: Well, I, um, she was new to me at that time. I had not um, heard of her. I think it was, Festival yes, I think it was one of my first festivals. Um, and I, if I left with one thing, it was the tapes of those sessions. <laughs> and I, I just found that she was, there was somebody who was talking about um, a really profoundly dark um, period of history, um, and some of it that continued um, ongoing in uh, the labor camps and gulags um, for her um, writing poetry. So I think part of the draw was her own story about um, being in a labor camp and um, learning what it is to love one's enemies, mm-hmm. um, and I that made a profound impact on me. And the other was just the way that she talked about poetry, the sort of depth of not only its meaning but how embodied poetry is in her that i hadn't seen in any american poets which seemed very from the you know neck up you know very sort of heady but not full full in that way and i think she knew something about poetry and could articulate that that i hadn't heard anywhere else she was here in
1: 1998 And this was after spending, I guess she'd been in the West about 10 years. So she was able to, um, when she left the Gulag, she was allowed to go for medical treatment to London. And then her citizenship had been revoked um, while she, her Soviet citizenship while she was in um, in London and so kind of was in exile has been was in exile for the west for about 10 years and then she was here at Calvin in 1998 just as she was about to return um, and was and talks about this in some of the in some of her sessions which will probably come out where she she doesn't not quite know what to expect next um, but she's eager to return to her homeland which she, which she loves um, which is really interesting
3: yeah she I think she um, thought that you can't keep the sort of soul of a I mean, I think she called herself a Russian poet, um, of a Russian poet without being in the land from which the poetry sort of arose. And that um, I think her ties to language and poetry, I mean, I think she never had a extreme comfort with English, even though she is incredibly articulate. Indeed.
1: Well, let's listen to this poem that Irina reads that I really loved. Um, Of course, Irina doesn't read an English translation, so we had Jane's work come into the studio and read the poem. Um, But Irina gives it, she sets it up, she gives a little bit of
2: context. Let's listen in. It's very special for me. Yesterday said that poetry is of no use whatsoever. That's why I love love it. But this poem is an exception. It was written in the labor camp about how I wanted a cherry red dress. And it was smuggled down that published in the West, translated before I was released. When I came to England, people have have read this poem, started giving me cherry red dresses. (laughs) In all sizes. It was more than half dozen of them, even since I ballooned two sizes up, I, I still can wear
4: some of them, so here we are with no use. Some people's dreams pay all their bills. Some people's dreams pay all their bills, while others gild an empty shell but mine go whimpering about a velvet dress, cherry red and sumptuous as sin. Oh, inaccessible, not of our world, nowhere to get you or to put you on, but how I want you. Against all reason's reproaches, there, in the very narrows of the heart's recesses, Flourishes the poison of heavy folds and obscure embroidery. The childish, flouted right to beauty. Not bread, not domicile, but unbleached royal lace. In spiraled rings, sly ribbons, but no. My day is like a donkey, bridled, laden. My night, deserted like the prison light, but in my soul, it's no good, I am guilty. I keep on sewing it, and in my mind I make the thousandth stitch as I do up my anorak and try on my tarpaulin boots.
2: In Russian, it sounds like that. Кому мечта по всем счетам оплатит, кому позолотит пустой орех, а мне скулит про бархатное платье вишневое и пышное как грех. О недоступное не нашей жизни и негде взять и некуда надеть, но как мне хочется резонное укоризни коризни перекор, там в самой тесноте сердечных закутков. Цветёт отрава тяжёлых складок, Тёмного шитья, ребяческое попранное право На красоту, не хлеба, не жилья, Но королевских небелёных кружев, Витых колец, лукавых лент. А нет, мой день, как ослик, Взнуздан и нагружен, А ночь пустынна, как тюремный свет. Но я в душе, что делать? виновата и тысячный стежок кладу
1: I just love that image of her in this gray labor camp longing for a bright red dress um, and in some ways it f- felt to me as we were actually to our whole staff as we were prepping this episode, as a kind of metaphor for um, poetry itself uh, and the and the ways in which she was reaching out for the kind of beauty of language um, in the midst of a kind of pummeling experience that some might argue,
3: why why poetry at all in this moment? Why that? I, I think for her, poetry is hope. I mean, it's the, it is maybe Gray may be the color of hope, but I think poetry is the language of hope mm-hmm. that she um, continues in. Um, the ways that she talks about um, everything from forgiveness to life in prison it carries a really um, a profound, not a denigrating humor, but this sort of really um, a humor that I haven't really seen in this country before. And she has written sitcom, which I did not yes, know. Yes, yes. So. She actually went
1: back after this session, you know, um, went back and spent, you know, many years writing the Russian version of the nanny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sense of humor and even that ability to um, to to dwell in the kind of lighthearted even superficially humorous part of life, and to to take it seriously and to um, give it her attention, I think speaks to a real fullness of spirit and character, which is all part of why we are so excited to um, present this. Even though, you know, her her memoir is gray as the color of hope, um, you know, suggest. And her poetry can be quite compact and and bleak, you might say. And yet there's a real, there's a liveliness to it and to her presentation that is, we've just all um,
3: here in the office kind of fallen for her. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> and um, I have as, to return to that yeah. tape, I I mean, obviously I've, I've, when I purchased my next car, I, I thought I have to have something that still has a tape layer in it because I had these tapes um, and the last one of them just broke um, two weeks ago because I was listening to it over and over. But um, it it's kind of amazing that here in 2017, you're looking for a car with a tape player so you can listen to <laughs>
5: tapes for the
1: 1998 <laughs> Festival of Faith and Writing. Well, thanks so much for joining oh. me today in the office. It's <laughs> in the studios. <laughs> so wonderful. Next, you'll hear Irina read her own work and discuss poetry more broadly. English translations are read by James Wart, who you've already heard, and Luke Klatt, both of whom are professors of English at Calvin College and are distinguished poets in their own rights. And now, Irina Rutushinskaya at the
2: 1998 Festival of Faith and Writing. In the labor camp, I used to pray thanks, God, I am not a sculptor. Otherwise, they would confiscate all my works and break them down. You know, any occupational or totalitarian regime could control film producers because they need uh, TV channels, studios, actors, they work as a team. They could destroy pictures, they could destroy musical instruments or confiscate them but one, need, one doesn't need anything for writing poetry. Not even a pen and the pencils. Many people are able to compose their poems in their mind and only after that reach their computers if they have any. So in the hard time, when the hard time comes, poets, poetry always goes on the surface. That's why It was so important in the wartime both in England and in Russia and I think in this country because it it gives a concentration of human emotions and it is very close to the values which cannot be taken away because they cannot be taken they cannot be touched they are not material Poetry is not connected with material world at all. There are no ways how to stop spreading poetry around. That's why I feel very optimistic about the future of poetry, whatever may come. The next poem would give you some idea of what used to be a religious propaganda in the former Soviet Union because the expertise during my interrogation has uh, proven that it is a criminal poem because it is about God.
4: I still think I see the city where no one lives. I still think I see the city where no one lives where the pinkies of the weeds have pushed apart the order of the concrete. And in the debris of the church, still young the Madonna, like a mermaid over a slipper, yet waits for Lady Day. If not today, then tomorrow. After all, it is summer now forever, and the trees won't lose the children, and they won't feel cold. For clothes the dragonflies are triumphant the water and the rails has rusted stars that have not been seen before are showing through and they're neither to be snatched away by the school bell nor wiped out by december wolf evening and midday of wormwood be consoled madonna from the grass to the beasts None of us will ever die. We shall be with you. This city is already outside the law.
2: Все мне чудится город, в котором никто не живет, где мизинчики трав растолкали порядок бетона, и в обломках костела еще молодая Мадонна, как русалка на туфельке. Все благовещение ждет. Не сегодня, так завтра, Ведь лето уже навсегда. И деревьям детей не терять, И не стыть по одежде. Торжествуют стрекозы, Заржавела в рельсах вода, Проступают светила, Которых не видели прежде. И ни школьным звонком не урвать, Не смести декабрём. Волчий вечер, Да полдень полыни, Утешься, Мадонна, От пылья до зверья. Мы никто никогда не умрём. Мы с тобой. Этот город уже вне закона. There is a one thing which is good about labor camp, if anything. It is the only place from where a person can write a loving poem to one's husband and or wife which never happens under other circumstances. (laughs) At least I never did. But this one was written to my husband as a letter.
5: If you can't sleep, count up to a hundred. If you can't sleep, count up to a hundred and drive these thoughts away. I know I can't be reached now and can't be helped in any way. So don't tear, as you burn in a night fever, the white bandage of your last sleep. Perhaps I will soon come back again, and then you will recognize me. I'll be a child, or a bush, with hands more tender there are none, and you must invent a story for me with a happy ending, and true. I will be grass, Or sand, so I'll be warmer to embrace. But if I'm a hungry dog, you must feed me. Like a gypsy woman, I'll catch at your sleeve. Or hurl myself at your window like a bird. But don't chase me away when you recognize me, for I'll only have come to take a look. And one day, in snow, or perhaps in rain, You'll come across a frozen kitten, and again it will be me, and you will be granted the power to save anyone you like, in whatever trouble. But by that time, I will be everywhere, everywhere on your path.
2: А если не спится, считай доста, и гоняйте мысли прочь. Я знаю, меня уже не И уже ничем не помочь. Так не рви, сгорая, в ночном бреду Белый бинт последнего сна. Может быть, я скоро опять приду? И тогда ты меня узнай. Я буду ребёнком Или кустом с ладошками нет нежней, А ты нагадай мне с хорошим концом Сказку да подлинней. Я буду травой Или песком, чтобы было теплее обнять, Но если я буду голодным псом, Ты не гони меня. Я цыганкой дерзко схвачу за рукав, Или птицей метнусь к окну, Но ты меня не гони, узнав, Ведь я просто так, взглянуть. А однажды в снег, Или, может, дождь, Ты в каких-то чужих краях На котёнка озябшего набредёшь. И опять это буду я. И кого угодно, В любой беде тебе будет дано спасти а я к тому времени буду вести на твоём пути You know we're coming now to the times of wild spiritual search both in the West and in Russia people are interested in supernational phenomena. People do feel that our materialistic world is not that materialistic and the most important and the most exciting things we cannot touch, we cannot measure. And I think poetry as well as music evoke people's ability to enter those other worlds we are longing for since we are born. People don't simply read or listen. They, while reading or listening, they do their creative part. That's why there are no two people which would understand or feel the same piece of music in the same way. And the same is true about poetry. It is clear especially when a poem is put on music later, after it was written. Because I know examples of the same poem which was put into music in five, six absolutely different ways. And as a result, we had five or six absolutely different, emotional, different to- songs. Well, the only thing I can add is that the highest ambition of a Russian poet is to write a poem which would be good enough to be put into music, which would be good enough to become a song, and if this poem becomes a folk song which stays for generation usually people forget the name of the author and that's the highest ambition of any russian uh, poet to be forgotten the next two poems we're going to read would give you perhaps some idea why i'm now moving back to Russia to live there after all what I have there. The first poem was written in the day I left my city in Russia.
4: Everything repeats itself in life. Everything repeats itself in life. Everything repeats itself. Again, the night road, And the hand holding mine. Everything changes in the world. Everything changes. If you live a while longer, you'll see that the clock has stopped, and the intricate black fingers are still, and the sum of scars and insults fades from the heart, and the stepmother stands silent by her cross, and you enter the final tunnel knowing who it is that waits. In the meantime, the night road and the ticking up of numbers and the road, unmeasured by us, gathers in the miles, and my virgin midnight star stands high and says, When you say goodbye, take care you don't forget me.
2: Все повторяется в жизни, все повторяется. Вот опять ночная дорога и рука в которой моя. Все изменяется в мире, все изменяется. Вот еще поживешь немного и увидишь, часы стоят. И не движутся черных стрелок витые пальчики. И уходят из сердца рубцам и обидам счет. И молчит у креста твоего стоящая мачеха. И, входя в последний туннель, ты знаешь, кто тебя ждет. А пока начинает дорога, и тикают цифры точные, И мотает нам километры ненамемеренный путь. И стоит моя недотрога, звезда моя полуночная, Говорит, как начнешь прощаться, смотри меня не забудь.
5: We are branded with Russia by a white-hot blizzard. We are branded with Russia by a white-hot blizzard. By the rhetoric of dark funnels, of pits made of snow. Go away, eyeless woman, go away. Only, how are we to leave each other in infinite whirling, in our kinship, in conflict with her, And when at last you break loose from the oppressive tenderness of her despotic embraces, in which to fall asleep is to do so forever, your head swims, as if in your first childish drag at a cigarette, and your lungs are torn to shreds like a cheap envelope. And then, as you wait for everything that has emerged alive from her unpeopled cold, to recover from the narcosis to know that the angels of russia freeze to death towards morning like sparrows in the frost falling from their wires into the snow
2: nas rossiei claim it dobila Прочь без глаза, прочь. Только как нам уйти друг от друга В бесконечном кружении, В родстве и сражении с ней? А когда, наконец, отобьешься От нежности тяжкой Самовластных объятий, В которых уснуть, как навек, Все плывет в голове, Как от первой ребячьей затяжки, И разодранной легкие, Как нестандартный конверт. А потом... Ожидая, пока отойдет от наркоза все, что вышло бы живьем из безлюдных я холодов, знать, что русские ангелы, как воробьи на морозах, замерзают под утро и падают в снег с проводов. that poetry writing is like playing ball with one's father. It is like you throw a ball. Look, God, what can, I, what can I do? And he throws you the ball back. And it is, it is like that. For, at least it was like that for him. I have a different experience because I grew up in, under the circumstances when the Bibles were not available. I've read Bible for the first time when I was 23. I was not taught how to pray, but I believed in God since I was nine. And actually my beginning of poetry writing was something like a search. I didn't know how to pray. And I would say that my first poems were, well, not very polite, it was not like, they were not like prayers, they were rather like quarreling with God, asking endless questions, but the funny thing was that after asking those questions, somehow the answer came, I never heard voices of anything, but I do remember, I even wrote a poem about this when I was 12 why on earth I was sent to this time, to this country, to this family if I clearly feel I don't belong here? What's the God's purpose? And the answer I heard, well, somewhere inside my mind was, are you sure that you did not agree? the beginning to go there and it came like pieces of puzzle yes I understood of course with my love to challenges where on earth could I be sent of course there and since then I felt my belonging to Russia yes it was my choice but perhaps I wouldn't feel it that clearly if I wouldn't write this poem full of lamentation, I would say. Quite honestly, I never think when I write, I never think of poetry purpose at all. I mean, after, I can talk about it, but when I read some other people's poem, it is like just when we were growing up we all used to fly in our sleep. Do you remember the sensation? And sometimes I have a feeling that with reading or writing poetry we're trying to do, do the same. We're trying to fly. And it is, it is of no use of no purpose, just because we want to do it. Later when the first sensation of this flying, I I don't know, each good poem I come across virtually lifts me up and I keep this flying feeling each time I reread this poem. After this we can, after the sensation is gone, we we can talk sensibly and after this we can think of purpose of possible readers of uh, publishing or or importance for the society and so on and so on but I would say honestly it is for me it is only the side effects comparing with this flying sensation. That's why perhaps I sound rude, but I I keep hearing from the editors, from other writers, that you must think of your readers, of your possible buyers of your books. I never do. When I write a poem, I don't think of reader. I'm think only about whom I throw the ball. And it is play, it is of no purpose. That's what I like about poetry, of no use whatsoever. And the last one actually requires no comments. It's about happiness, which I I cannot find still.
5: Drawing near, September has hung the stars lower. Drawing near, September has hung the stars lower, and in gales, fish splash to them with their fins. At night, the callous waves grind stone, and the houses of the shores hide and silently listen. A petal of space has curled up and lain down with the bay. The hills have risen like dogs with quietly bristling hides. A man sits drawing shapes in the sand. In a couple thousand years, he'll find out how to be happy.
2: Подошёл сентябрь, перевесил звезды пониже, И в шторма до них рыбы доплескивают плавниками, А грубевшие волны ночами шлифуют камень, И дома берегов затаились, и молча слышат. Лепесток пространства свернулся и лег заливом, Горы встали, как псы, и тихо щетинят шкуры. Человек сидит и чертит в песке фигуры, for on of years, he has Thank you.
1: Irina also spoke to undergraduates in a Calvin College chapel during the 1998 festival. Here she shares what she learned about her faith during her experience in prison, especially as it relates to guarding against bitterness, loving one's enemies, and coming together with people who harbor different religious convictions.
2: Dear friends, I feel really privileged and honored to be this morning with you, it is not every day that an especially dangerous state criminal is asked to speak in the church. (laughs) And I would like to share with you some experiences which people, thanks God, don't have in the normal life. Perhaps you remember that one of the most difficult Christ suggestions was leave everything and follow me in the everyday life we never think of doing it of leaving everything behind and follow god without anything at all so i would like to tell you my first discovery which i made an hour about an hour after i was arrested because the arrest in the Soviet Union really meant that the person was completely isolated, robbed of anything, including one's toothbrush. And it was the first time in my life when I owned anything, owned nothing, and didn't know what would happen to me tomorrow and instead of panic or shock or whatever which one might expect, the first sensation was the deep feeling of security. In that moment, I was absolutely sure that God was with me, he was looking after me, and that was the moment when I discovered, not theoretically, but deeply in my soul that other humans cannot do anything wrong to me until I cooperate. Of course I thought maybe they would kill me tomorrow. Big deal. It means that tomorrow I will be in heaven. Not not only me but all my friends had this feeling. Everyone who was with me in the labor camp. We used to call this feeling a hand on the shoulder. And this feeling was with us throughout all those years of the labor camp. The second lesson all of us political prisoners had to learn in the labor camp was about hatred. Again, theoretically, we all know that we are not supposed to hate, we're supposed to love our enemies, we're supposed to pray for them. How on earth it is possible to do it? But in the labor camp, in the KGB prison, The life is organized in such a way that if a person allows herself or himself to hate, it means this person would be destroyed in several weeks. There are no sources of positive emotions. There are plenty of reasons to hate, to feel bitterness, because they do torture people, they do humiliate people, And if one allows oneself to hate in several weeks this person would be burnt from inside it starts with lack of sleep one cannot sleep one feels this burning hate and in in several days people become insane if they don't know how to cope with this feeling I've I've seen such cases and Now I'm sure that everyone who went through the labor camp and came out mentally in one piece did learn how to give up hatred. Then in the labor camp I I learned what does it mean to pray for my executioners. Sometimes in the West I've heard such theories that You know, people say, you Russians are slaves by nature, and the more you are beaten, the more you enjoy it, you uh, establish special relationship with your executioners and so on. Of course, it is all nonsense, but about the special relationship with the executioners, I think it is true. I think under the serious pressure people can understand what does it mean to take care of their enemies before the churches, different denominations were split in fourth century one of the fathers of the church which was uh, was in one piece then gregory niski wrote that god wants to save everyone and how it is possible if, if the day of the last judgment the justice is promised, not mercy, justice. If we are if taught to love everyone, how can we be, uh, be happy there in God's heaven knowing that not everyone is safe? And his idea was that yes, God will Introduce justice in the day of last judgment. But we humans would be supposed to show mercy. And those who suffered would have rights to step forward and to say, God, following your example, following your commandments, in your name, I can say I did suffer from this particular person I forgive him and now you cannot condemn him he is under my wing because I forgive him and if everyone would forgive everyone in that day perhaps everyone would be saved this teaching is still in tradition of our Russian Orthodox Church and I think it makes more or less clear why dealing with our enemies sometimes fighting them sometimes ruining their careers i've ruined plenty because i never uh, took part in the interrogation and never uh, give any answers to the kgb questions so they were punished repeatedly for not being successful and so did all my friends. Yes, we ruined their careers, but in the same time, just sitting during this boring interrogation, not opening our mouth, what could we do except for praying for those blinded, perhaps devil-possessed people, who didn't know, actually they didn't know what they were doing. And under this pressure, in such situation, yes, I can testify, every human, each human being would be able to find inner resources to pray for one's enemies. If those enemies are real, not imaginary. And the third lesson I've learned in the labor camp was how people of different faith could cope together. Because there were different denominations among political prisoners. There was Catholic, Pentecostal, Baptist, Russian Orthodox and non-believers in our little labor camp for especially dangerous state criminals. And we had to avoid somehow religious wars, you know, we had to support each other. So our unwritten rule was no arguments, it must be something higher than our understanding about God, and let's be directed by this real God's existence, not by our understanding of it. As a result, avoiding all contradicting each other in religious points, we celebrated Christmas twice and Easter twice and all religious holidays of various congregations and I would say we had more holidays than any other family, usually with a slice of bread and mug of water or, or even without but we did feel the joy and warmth and we could pray together and even those who were not believers then years later became converted one of my friends an Estonian lady who became a politician after Estonia got her independence she became a minister in Estonia then in the labor camp she was a non she said I don't know about God I don't care and looking at her at her cheerfulness at her always being ready to help I thought I wish all Christians would behave like her two, two years ago she was converted God knows when and how to find this soul now she is a Catholic nun and this the most interesting result of being under the pressure. Because now, I I still keep in touch with my friends. We all survived and it was a miracle itself. Now I can say that everyone of our team does believe in Jesus Christ now. We still belong to different denominations. We still feel like relatives. And we still remember this lesson. If we leave everything and follow the Christ calling, all fears would disappear. Nothing wrong would ever happen with the person. And it gives us strength to do it again and again in different situations. For instance, now I'm going back to Russia to live there. I don't know what on earth to expect now in my country. But it gives us strength, I think, to the moment when we'll hear this calling for the last time, leave everything and come to me and this last time would not be death it would be not total destruction it would be eternal love god's glory and his kingdom thank you
1: Many thanks to Lil Copan. You can follow her on Twitter at Lil Copan. Many thanks also to Jane Swart, co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, and Lou Klatt, former poet laureate of Grand Rapids, for lending us their voices. We are also grateful to the late Calvin College English professor emeritus, Ed Erickson, whose voice you heard at the very beginning of this episode and whose advocacy played a big part in bringing Irina Ratushinskaya to the festival. He was a lover of literature, master teacher, and consummate storyteller, and he also passed away earlier in 2017. He is missed. And finally, we're grateful to Irina. Her courage and humor in the face of abject oppression are tangible reminders of the sustaining power and relevance of poetry. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Today's episode was produced by John Brown, Amanda Smart, and yours truly. Our team includes Sarah Bass, Peter Ford, Gwyneth Finley, Don Hedinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Lou Klatt, Deborah Reenstra, Sarah Ternage, Chloe Sellis, Isabel Sellis, Deborah Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you are especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw at calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell. Back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.